0: ITR Economics, glad that you're with us today for this Trends Talk, this special Trends Talk, so that we can answer some questions left over from our presentation to you. I hope you found that helpful, and I do thank you for your questions. Uh, We look forward to those more than you can possibly know because our goal here is to help as many people as we possibly can in the ways that will help them the most. And obviously questions are a great way to do that. First question is, uh, where do you believe U.S. China relations are headed, better or stagnant, and what are the key drivers you consider in this analysis? I don't think uh, I would use uh, stagnant in a bad way. I would say more the same. I know that's not a better or worse stagnant uh, choice, but uh, we're, we're not in a warm relationship right now with China, and I don't think it's gonna warm up any from where we are today, but I think it'll go quieter. I think the new president's approach is, is going to be a quieter approach, but he's made it pretty plain uh, in two different fronts that he's not interested in being buddy-buddy and making everything back to where it was you know four years ago. That's not his goal. He's made that plain in his proposed tax law, which may or may not become the law of the land, depending on what Georgia decides in January. Uh, we'll wait and see on that one. But in that new tax law, he has proposed a, a surtax Think of that as a tariff on goods coming back into the United States that U.S. companies have made overseas. And obviously, that's not just China, but that's a good indication of, of stuff going on from China, given the uh, political and popular rhetoric. And providing a tax credit for U.S. firms that uh, reshore and make things here. Uh, so, I mean, he's not going to all of a sudden just uh, be head over heels in love with China. Now, the other reason is he has said quite clearly that every piece of legislation that he is going to have before him in his presidency is going to be geared towards climate change and climate initiatives. Um, Not a secret. What a lot of Americans probably don't bother to think about, or maybe they actually believe differently, is that China's the worst polluter among the major nations in the world. It may be the worst, I don't look at the smaller nations. Uh, their CO2 emissions continue to climb as U.S. CO2 emissions are declining, and as Europe's CO2 emissions are declining. Uh, we have, in effect, met the Kyoto uh, protocols and the Paris protocols. We just don't get any credit for it. We, we always beat ourselves up on this. But President Biden, a President Biden, when he's president, I think is going to be looking at China and go, to support that is contrary to my, my scruples, to my mission statement, to what I said I'm gonna make this all about. So if he's true to himself, and if he's true to what he was talking about, I don't think he can take an easy stance on China. We'll wait and see. That's a lot of political science beyond economics. Uh, but as I listen to the man, and I see what's going on, I have to think he's gonna be quieter, it's gonna be more subtle, uh, but he's not gonna go easy either. All right, the next question is, it appears U.S. tolerance for uh, another shutdown is small, but other countries are more open to it. Given the U.S. dependence on foreign supply chains, how do you factor this into your analysis? Are these all bets off types of activities, like a U.S. shutdown would be? Or do these have more subdued effect, saying pick winners and losers versus everyone loses? I like the way you worded that question, and the answer is, you would pick winners and losers versus everyone loses. Um, China is not going to do that. And so, I mean, you look at freight activity, air freight, and shipping freight, and the cost, and the capacity constraints, there's a lot of goods coming this way, and China's giving no indication that they're going to shut down. And when you hear in the press that nations are shutting down, be very careful, because sometimes they may mean industries are shutting down, but most often they're not. Most often they mean restaurants, and bars, and stadiums, and movie theaters. Um, it's, it's it's like New Mexico talking about having an advisory to stay home or actually just changed to an advisory. It was an order, but it was only a two week order and now it's changed to an advisory and they labeled uh, some businesses essential and non-essential, but it was not like April where you were told to stay home. You cannot run your business and all the rest of that stuff. It, it's, we're not talking about that. It's not the same list. So if you find that Italy for instance, decides that they really want to lock down their economy like it was April again, uh, sourcing from Italy will obviously become uh, a pain, very dramatic impact on supply chain from Italy. So you will pick winners and you will pick losers. I think China's gonna stay open. I think you're gonna find a lot of nations, as far as industry goes, stays open because of the sheer cost of shutting down. Uh, There are not a lot of nations who are in a hurry to do that again, especially the ones who do not have a large rainy day fund nations uh, have liquid assets, just like states have liquid assets, and in our own country, you'll find that it's very uneven. California could shut down the economy and have enough cash to last for a long time. Can't remember the number of days, how many hundreds of days it was. And you look at Illinois, it has enough cash to last, I believe it was four days. Uh, So, I mean, it really, you've got to be thinking about their ability to withstand that type of economic impact again. Some nations could, other nations uh, would be horrific and they'd be borrowing from the World Bank and everybody that they possibly can as fast as they can and then they have the problems that fall along with that. How uh, should we think about portfolio diversity in retirement in the face of potential long-term depression? Uh, You mentioned very different approaches for those 40 to 50 and those who are 60 plus and I elaborate. Yeah, if you're in your 60s, you're going to be looking to um, grow your wealth between now and the Great Depression, then you're going to concentrate on preserving your wealth. Because most often people in your 70s and 80s are not into uh, taking risks. But if you're in your 40s uh, now and you find yourself in the Great Depression and you're in your 50s, you still want to create wealth. You still have to create wealth. And the Great Depression will give you opportunities to do that. You'll be buying real estate or businesses or getting into equities real heavily. And if you're in your 60s now, so you're in your 70s, then you're gonna move some money back into equities, but you're not gonna risk a lot because the psychology of the time will be that it is depressing, that there's too much risk, and you're gonna wonder whether you should or you shouldn't. You're not gonna sleep well at night. It's gonna be bad for your health, literally. So, I mean, it will all depend on who you are and your makeup, but it comes down to risk uh, tolerance. I would encourage you to see your own uh, professional wealth advisor uh, about that. Uh, our ITR uh, optimizer, uh, B, as in uh, bellwether, uh, uses machine intelligence uh, on top of our ITR thinking with leading indicators and and, and, and looking at the future uh, to uh, guide folks. And even in there, there's ways to deal with your risk tolerance. Uh, if you want to know more about the optimizer, B, I can make that happen for you. Send me an email. Uh, alan at itreconomics.com. But otherwise, just think in general terms of who you are. I mean, you could be in your 40s today to have no risk tolerance, in which case I would try, try to talk you out of that, not as your RIA, but just as a friend. I would say, you know, you don't, you don't do that. That's, you're missing out on opportunities and shortchanging your retirement. But if you're in your 60s and you're in a fully aggressive position, I would wonder about your sanity. So um, you need to have that conversation with yourself and with the Wealth Advisor. Uh, how will the economic impacts of COVID-19 affect the depression you're predicting for, for around 2030? Will it impact the timing, magnitude, and duration of that depression compared to what you have expected before the pandemic? Um, you know, uh, we, we asked ourselves that same question, so I'm glad you asked it, it's a great question, in my opinion, because we thought of it too. And the answer is, it should not affect the timing. The, incredible amount of debt we're getting to in this nation and in other nations is consistent with the forecast of around 2030, a Great Depression, that it doesn't move up the timeline because the bond market is okay with it so far. And If the bond market's okay with this for several more years, that means we're good for 2030. What we're doing is we're putting more and more and more powder uh, into that uh, magazine and then the, the fuse comes and gets lit. Uh, in the second half of this decades, so What we've done is we've made for a bigger explosion and, and make the problems worse as we go forward, especially when you read just yesterday, did you read this where uh, Larry Summers and Ben Bernanke are saying the government should just spend as much money as they possibly can. Do not worry about the debt. Do not worry about the deficit. Uh, and uh, New York Times called them centrist economists. That's not centrist thinking, my friends. That is not at all centrist thinking. That is, that is over... Uh, the, to the other end of the spectrum or towards the other end of the spectrum because that debt has a cost. And sooner or later, another nation's gonna present good, safe alternative to the United States uh, and it'll be viewed as safer. And they are going to be offering uh, good return, which means we're gonna to have to raise our yields, raise our yields, raise our yields, and eventually the bond market's gonna pay for other folks, understand the risk involved with our massive amount of debt as we accumulated year after year after year, And at some point in the future, uh, that just becomes a crushing load. I think we discussed it, modern monetary theory is what this is about, and big names have liked it. Um, I'm not a big name, uh, but I'll tell you what, it scares me to death that we can think we can just borrow our way to prosperity because I have yet to see that happen. But to borrow your way to prosperity and with the vague promise of long-term returns Show me when that's happened before. Do I think that it'll change the magnitude? Well, it could make it a little uh, deeper. It could make the crater a little deeper. You're right. Will it change the duration? I don't think so because it self-corrects in large part at the end of the 2030s because that's the peak death rate for baby boomers around the world. So one of the drivers of the Great Depression is having to take care of us old codgers, and if we're not there to take care of, then that money is freed up to be used in other areas. And my hope is that you Gen Xers and millennials will say, okay, this socialism stuff didn't work out so much. You're right, I'm not ashamed of that. I am not a socialist. Uh, I happen to think capitalism works rather well, thank you. And it doesn't mean that it's perfect, and it doesn't mean that we don't have our responsibilities, but I think we're gonna see in the 2030s that socialism has failed us. And while it all sounds good, you cannot borrow your way to utopia, And therefore, you folks, the millennials, especially in you Gen Xers, are gonna decide, you know what, we should take this freed up money and uh, rebuild our future. And that begins with paying down this debt, which is an anchor. Sort of like a family uh, saying, you know what, we gotta get rid of these credit cards before we can move on. All right, I hope that helps. I love the questions, I'm, I'm happy you answered them. I hope we get to talk again in the future. Uh, As of today, when we're recording this, which is December 3rd, what I would like you to note is that uh, certainly COVID cases are running rampant. Uh, Deaths are high. Different states, the large states, are not beyond manageable by a long shot. Uh, So it's a scary time. As we talk, there are three or four vaccines that are showing great promise. Some are advisors beginning to ship some, according to United and other sources. And uh, people are getting ready to, to ship that out. That will certainly help the forecast as we talked about at our meeting. Uh, Our forecast is not contingent upon it, but the human side of me is really excited thinking this could be a really good thing for us. And also as of today, which was not the case when we were meeting, uh, the Congress of the United States seems to be working on a $908 billion bipartisan plan and the Speaker of the House seems to be willing to talk about it whether the Republicans in the Senate are willing to go up from $500 billion to $908 billion. It'd be a stopgap measure, but we have a lot of programs that are ending at the end of December, and the stopgap measure would carry us over uh, well into January and beyond, giving the new Congress a chance to wrestle with an issue that uh, is theirs. so this Congress can provide a nice bridge, and it looks like they will. I'm encouraged today. I would not have been two days ago, but I'm encouraged today that they might provide that bridge. Now that seems contradictory to the debt thing. I know that it is. Uh, that's because on the other side, when, after you do this, you're supposed to take a whole bunch of money and pay down the debt and forego other things. If you're going to provide stimulus spending like this, you have to pay the bill. And so the stimulus spending will help individuals, it'll help some businesses, but we have to remember to pay the bill. Uh, If we do that, then it's just a short-term loan as opposed to the magic money tree. Thank you all very much. I wish you the best. Great holidays to you. Look forward to seeing you, I hope, in 2021.